This is Decoding Healthcare. I'm Kevin Ban, And I'm Joanna Weiss. And today we are going to talk about one of my favorite terms in population health, leakage. <laughs> you do like that term. Leakage. I'm going to say it again because I like it so I've much. I've got to stop you. Why do you like this term so much? <laughs> okay. It's evocative. Mm-hmm. It does not sound like jargon. True. It contains no acronyms, which is a triumph Amazing in healthcare. Amazing in medicine. And it's important. Well, I'll tell you, it may be the single most important element that you have to consider if you're going to, you know, get into risk contracting. So let's talk about what leakage is. It it means when referrals go out of network, which can be a very big cost to both doctors and patients. Yeah, that's something that we had to think a lot about. And and most of the time, you're not aware of what your patients are doing. And it it comes as quite a surprise when you find out that they're not faithful. They are going (laughs) across the street. To that specialist from that other system. Yeah, for sure. That's why people who oversee the contracts have been talking and fretting about this concept for years and calling it different names. Keepage on the positive (laughs) side. That's the positive spin. In between there, I think there's been out-migration, maybe retention. So uh, how should we refer to it today? I think um, stopping leakage is fine. That was Julie Beach. She is a registered nurse, and she has managed contracts for United Healthcare, Anthem, Evelyn Health, and now... I'm the Vice President of Population Health Management for Dignity Health. So, before you control who is in a network, you have to build that network in the first place. And when we were recording this podcast, way back when, the Red Sox were in the middle of some mid-season trades. I will add some very interesting and expensive mid-season trades. So I started realizing that building a network is a little bit like building a team. You need your utility players. You need your specialists. Yes. And, you know, it takes what? A little psychology, a little technology, a little money ball? Yeah, you have to actually put this all together and you have to make sure that everyone's on board and understands kind of the rules of the game. This is what Julie Beach has been working on. So let's dive in and hear more. Talking to a lot of other healthcare systems across the country, I think when at times they say, wow, I wish I had done something differently, it was, wow, we spent too much time thinking about quality or uh, mm-hmm. or other things other than network and, and wish that they could have sort of started there. So, so that leads me to where do you start? Uh, how do you know what the network looks like and, and how do you begin to engage the doctors in that whole discussion? There's two different philosophies on how you build your network. The way that Dignity started building their networks four years ago was whoever wanted to come in was in. So we went, number one, to primary care physicians. All your membership in value-based agreements are based upon attribution to your primary care physicians. So you want to align your primary care physicians first. Then we started looking at all of our specialists, and we said, okay, anybody who wants to join us, come in and we'll um, join. Well, what happened is some of our networks got really large. And um, if you have a really large network, splitting the pie among a really large network means you don't get that big of a piece of pie. If you have a really large network, it's hard to manage the health care of that um, both quality and cost efficiency because you're talking to a physician group where they may only have two members versus if you had a smaller network of people who are aligned and focused on value-based contracts, you can have more control on now you represent maybe 20% of the physician's panel in value-based agreements. And that makes material difference in how the physician is engaged in performing in risk management. So we're reassessing our networks constantly about who should be in there. What you also find on the opposite end is you find some holes 
in your networks. So for example, in one of my markets, I have no ophthalmologist. So I had to go out and find someone who would not necessarily join the network, but contract with us to participate in these risk deals. Well, that brings up a great point there. So there inevitably will be physicians and likely specialists who just are not in network, whether they're ophthalmologists, like you just mentioned, cardiac surgeons, neurosurgeons. So how do you approach that? So we itemize what you need. So for instance, if you're dealing with a commercial population, you need to make sure you have OBGYNs. If you're dealing with a Medicare population, some gerontologists really help. So what we do is we map our population to see where they live, and you make sure that you have a good ratio of a different mix of specialists based upon needs. You never have all the specialists you want, which is okay as long as you identify who you need to contract with and you have a contract with those providers to deliver the services. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk about physicians. How do you get them to play along? How do you get them to adopt processes that are going to drive in-network referral? It has to be very easy for the physicians to understand the in-network process. So if you think about when a patient goes to a physician's office, a physician doesn't write a referral. Right. He actually tells his uh, referral clerk or puts a task in his electronic medical record that says this person needs to be seen by a cardiologist primary care physicians control about $10 million worth of downstream healthcare cost between specialist referrals, hospital utilization, outpatient testing. But all these referrals are actually being made by clerks that are making $15 an hour who probably have a high turnover rate. And so what we've done is we've integrated a solution into the physician's electronic medical records. So when the primary care physician says, does a task in his EMR, send this person to a cardiologist, The referral clerk will put Julie Beach's name in. Um, She needs to see a cardiologist, and it will bring back only United Healthcare providers who are in cardiology near my geographic area. So you have to make it seamless in their workflows. The second thing is the physicians have to understand the implications to the patients. Patients are highly unlikely to follow the referral patterns. For example, if if we've done this study with um, our partner that says, If you give a patient a paper referral, chances are about 25% of the time they actually do follow through with the referral. And it usually takes on timing. So if you can get the patient scheduled within a day of the primary care physicians, you have like an 86% likelihood the patient will complete the referral. So all of that is supported now with technology, and it literally is a no-thought process for a person to find the appropriate physician to refer to. Yeah, it sounds like it gives you a lot of transparency, too, across what's happening and uh, must be a really useful tool. Yeah, you can factor in other things, too. We started off our tool when we launched it is just factoring in the basics. Are they in our network? Do they take United Healthcare Insurance or Blue Cross? And um, are they in the geographic area for the patient? We've expanded our criteria ranking based upon are they electronically accepting referrals or they still want faxes? We um, can also rank based upon how fast they see our patients. Are they reaching out to our patients in what time frame? How fast are our patients getting into their office? And then now, probably in a year from now, we'll also factor in other um, information such as cost efficiency and um, other specific quality metrics or outcome metrics. All right, I just need to cut in for a moment here, Kevin, and say faxes. 
This is healthcare. This is technology from the 1990s. Yeah, this should you know come as no surprise to anyone who is in healthcare. Faxes are alive and well, unfortunately. And we're talking about the need for better control of data and understanding things when we're operating on paper. I mean, you're already set back. Yeah, this is going to take time. You know, the truth is, not only do people not want to give up their workflows and how they do things, but we haven't figured out yet how to seamlessly incorporate that information uh, into the system without faxes. Okay, I'm hopeful that we will move into the 21st century soon. Let's get back to the conversation. Julie, help me understand how to engage patients in this. You know, people might be used to going to the same doctor for 20 years, and now you're asking them to do something different. How does that work? Patients are used to choice and convenience. They want to understand the information about their physician that's being referred to. So if you could say to him, this is the physician I referred to. He has really good outcomes with this condition. He will see you immediately then a patient's more likely to be seeing him because he's been endorsed. He's patients likely to go there because their neighbor goes to that physician. They're more likely to respond or engage right after an event. So as soon as the patient was diagnosed with diabetes or right after their heart attack, they're going to be compliant and follow the directions that we want them to go within network. They also want, though, convenience. A lot of times people can't take off work to see certain physicians. So we try to find convenient scheduled times for our patients so they can see their physicians. They can't get off during the day. You have evening appointments or weekends appointments. You have to have flexibilities. We also have to take into consideration that there's a lot of social issues impacting a patient, whether they choose to go to our network providers or other network providers. So patients who don't have transportation, if the physician we're referencing is not on the bus route, and it's in our Medicaid population, a patient can't get to them. When you think back about some of your work in managing networks, what are some of the pitfalls? Where do people just go wrong? Never take physicians for granted. Um, Many times people think, um, I'm a leader, I'm a manager, I'm an administrator, I know what's happening in a physician's office. And the reality is, if you've never been in a physician's office, you have no idea what's happening in a physician's office. So you can't make an assumption, well, if the physician would just do this, this will only add one more minute to every patient that he deals with. Well, you don't understand that the physician's already got 26 patients coming in his office. His office staff is already running around. He's still working at nighttime doing his charting and meeting all the requirements for all the regulatory bodies. So you have to be realistic on what is doable in a physician's office. And what we've seen is the best way to get a physician engaged, we talked about incentives. It's not always financial incentives. Sometimes the incentive is that you get to go home at nighttime or you can do one less round, you can do less rounds or we can um, make this easier on your office staff and you'll have less turnover because of the office staff. So what you're saying is it's not always just about, hey, we're going to compensate you if you keep people in network. You're actually trying to lighten their load. You're actually trying to facilitate their work. Right. Make it easier. Make their patients happier. Are there times when it actually makes sense to go out of network? Is that something that you actually encourage at times? I think it's a necessity. So, for example, I in one of my markets, I have the hospitals 
that are taking risk. And those hospitals do not provide all the services we need. For example, the pediatric services. We don't have a pediatric hospital, so they're going to go out of the network. There are certain types of procedures that don't happen within our network. So, for example, if I need a specialized service performed and I don't have a physician who performs those services, such as a tumor on the spinal cord, my spinal surgeons are too busy to take on another patient and the wait is six months, um, then we will refer out of network. The key is you have to understand what your network can deliver. So you've got to collect additional data and have it easily accessible for people to use when we're looking for specialized conditions. Are there times when simple procedures should happen outside of your network or, or not? There are times where we, because we take risk with the patients, our patient population, that we do use people who are not in our network. So, for example, if a colonoscopy, an outpatient colonoscopy at my hospital costs $750, or that's my reimbursement, but I can buy the same service, the same quality, at a freestanding facility for $350, I'm going to move to that facility because I'm in a risk pool. Same way with MRIs. Makes sense. I mean, really, you're working just on the value equation, which is yes. if the quality is the same, you want to pay less. Yes, yes. Is there a time, though, like when you do that, let's say a patient goes for a colonoscopy outside the network because it is less expensive and the quality is the same, does that become a problem for you, your organization in terms of follow-up? Uh, there, There's always a risk that if you send a patient outside your network that they'll be kept outside your network. Right, exactly. And so what we have done is we identify the services that we're going to want to send outside our network. We contract with those providers for the services, and included in the contract is the expectation that the patient will be returned to us. That's a great point. So if that patient goes out, has a normal colonoscopy, no harm, no foul, you don't really need the follow-up with the GI doctor. Right. But if that patient is found to have a cancer that requires surgery, you want that patient to come back within your system. Right. I guess it matters who you're working with. Do you find that hospital execs look at this whole thing very differently than, let's say, physicians working in the community? Very differently. Hospital executives are very good at running their hospitals on a fee-for-service system. So they're used to promoting ways to find the patients, such as the commercial patients, to come to our hospitals for um, their beds to be full, for their understanding their what the fee-for-service value is of having the patients in. Having more, obviously, more MRIs done in-house is a value to the hospitals versus having them done in a freestanding facilities. So this is hard conversion for hospital executives to think about risk pools and risk opportunities and aligning incentives with the physicians. Actually entering into a risk pool many times for physicians is more, our hospitals, is more of a defensive measure if they don't, the physicians go elsewhere. So in California, we partner with a lot of independent practice associations. And if we don't figure this out, they will go to our competitors and take their risk business there. So you have to figure out a new way of working with the physicians on risk patients. So this is hard. And our one of the things that I've liked so much about Dignity Health is that they've been open to learning this new way of reimbursement. And so they've been very receptive to thinking about moving, you know, some of our colonoscopy patients out of our hospital into a freestanding facility, but it still hurts <laughs> right. when it happens. 
the fee-for-service model is one where you want heads in the beds and you want the MRI yes. sort of churning. But this is yep. a totally different way to think about it. How do you get hospitals to come on board? If you have a hospital system that just invested, okay, we're going to do risk contracts, but didn't invest in how to manage them, you're not going to win and they're not going to stay in risk business for long. So you've got to give them wins to show the value. And we measure value constantly from a hospital perspective, from a physician perspective, and a patient perspective. Do you find that you get them on board more wholeheartedly if you share both upside and downside risk? Or is there a difference if you just have upside risk? People care less if you have upside risk only. People really pay attention if they could lose money. So we have about 185,000 members in upside-only programs, and they get attention, but they definitely don't get the same attention as the 450,000 where we have up and downside on. Right, because they see it as a nice bonus that maybe happens at the end of the year. Yeah. But if you get into downside risk, now all of a sudden they could actually lose money and make less. If you're an upside only, it's a statistical probability is what people are hoping on is they make it. But you know what? If I don't invest any administrative cost into it, it doesn't really hurt. I don't lose anything. When you're in an upside and a downside and you don't invest in the operations, you will lose money. The only thing I would say there is how do you recommend or like how would you start that? Because a lot of people, Julie, will say, hey, you know, if you want to get into this, maybe you want to start with an MSSP upside only type of risk program so that you can build out systems and, and get people aligned, but then you want to quickly move towards downside risk. Is that your experience? Oh, 100%. So the key for you is the data. So when you go into a risk program without any data, you're walking in blind and your chance of success is limited. So we always recommend that in year one, you take a program which has upside opportunity only, and then you learn real quick what you have to put in place. You got to put your nurses in place. You got to get your data put in place. You got to put your physicians in place. Then when you start getting into the opportunity to do downside, we recommend you move pretty fast as soon as you get the data. So Julie sets up a pretty useful roadmap here for an organization that wants to get involved in value-based care. Right. Once that does happen, does the patient realize, hey, I'm in a value-based contract now? No, I don't think so. I think <laughs> largely that's for healthcare wonks and nerds like us that talk about value-based care. I think it's absolutely meaningless to the Inside patient. Inside baseball. But what we do see with healthcare systems that get involved in risk sharing is that they begin to rethink how they want to deliver care. So initially they start off and they say, well, we're going to manage all of the attributed lives in this particular contract. And then they move towards, you know what, we just want to rethink how we deliver care to our patients. Well, you are talking about a new layer of services in a way, you know, the, either care coordinators, nurse navigators, people who are involved on the ground in patient care, and then also probably a layer of technology. It used to be that the provider was kind of the end-all and be-all. Now we have the technology, we have the data, we're able to figure out what do I need to act on and then we're able to redesign care in such a way that we can be effective in driving better outcomes. We're talking about a pretty big transformation that eventually patients are going to feel whether they're in risk-based contracts or not. That's where we're headed. You have to get there step by step, but eventually I think the way we deliver care will look completely different. Decoding Healthcare is a production of Athena Health. Our producer is Nikki Zace. Our engineer and composer and jack of all trades is Mike Moschetto. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Athena Health, 
I'm at Kevin Van MD. And I'm at Joanna Weiss. And for more stories about healthcare in America today, go to AthenaInsight.com. Mm-hmm.